You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lelada G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie May May Lakeisha oh, Mama does. For real? I'm not Mookie May May Lakeisha's uh, Mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Some information may contain graphic, violent, or explicit language. Listener's discretion is advised. What was in your mind when you heard Defending Black Girlhood podcast? What were you thinking this was going to be? I think I was prepared for a little bit more of a, maybe a sanitized version of what you were saying. I think what you were saying was very, just raw, very kind of visceral. I'm used to everybody kind of not getting it, not getting my experience, not getting my story, not getting what's going on with Black girls right now. And when we were just in conversation about it, as a white man who doesn't have to care about this if he doesn't want to, your response to how Ground Zero hit you really rendered me pretty speechless, and that's a hard thing to do. Myself and a lot of people I grew up with, a lot of my friends and family were empathetic and sympathetic to the cause of and to the, the injustices that we see that the Black community going through for centuries. And we sort of have read about these things and we think that we kind of get it. We can imagine putting ourselves in the shoes of those people and sort of imagining what that would be like, but we, we really don't. That's really not enough to understand what it's like to live that experience for a lifetime. I'm really excited about season two, where we're focusing in on can Black women heal and looking at the various ways we can answer that question. And in thinking of that question, I came upon Dr. Mopan and we had a conversation that was just really rich. And I felt like this was something that I wanted to bring to the podcast this season. Dr. Mopan, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's my honor. So we began talking, and in our conversation, you mentioned that you had listened to the Defending Black Girlhood podcast. What got you there? Yeah, you know, I actually, I heard about your podcast from, uh, from a coworker. We have a chat group amongst some of my coworkers that we just share books or podcasts or movies, things that people find interesting. And, and somebody shared your podcast and I was really interested. I try and listen to and support local artists. And so I tuned in and I listened to the first episode, Ground Zero, and I was just captivated. I think I listened to it back to back two times because I wanted to absorb everything you were saying. And, and Well, let you know, me ask you, before we get to Ground Zero, what was in your mind when you heard Defending Black 
Girlhood podcast. What were you thinking this was going to be? You know, I guess it caught my attention. It, it made me really curious because through my work and just from living in this society, I, I'm aware that there are really significant health disparities in educational attainment, wealth and income. And I know that Black girls are one of the most vulnerable groups in our population. And I've lived in Madison for about five years, and it's a fairly white, it's not the most diverse place I've been. And I was just really curious to kind of hear what a, a little person was sort of saying and advocating for a part of the population that I don't think gets a lot of visibility in Madison. Absolutely. So you listened to Ground Zero twice. Were you prepared to hear what I had to say? I think I was prepared for a little bit more of a, maybe a sanitized version of what you were saying. I think what you were saying was very just raw, very kind of visceral. And it hit me on both an intellectual level of, you know, this is, you're talking about history and you're talking about psychology and, and trauma. But then you're also just talking about how those concepts impact the lived Black experience. And mm -hmm. I think it shook me a little bit and it kind of made me realize that there's a lot that I don't know and a lot that I maybe thought that I knew about what the Black experience was like in, in our country. But it showed me that I, I was pretty ignorant, I think. So where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in a pretty small town in rural Washington state mostly a pretty white town. What I would, I use the word crunchy. It was kind of a progressive hippie vibe to it. Okay. Uh, very liberal, but also very white and very sheltered. So you shook me when you told me about your response, because I think having been a black girl, now a black woman, I'm used to everybody kind of not getting it not getting my experience, not getting my story, not getting what's going on with Black girls right now. And when we were just in conversation about it, as a white man who doesn't have to care about this if he doesn't want to, your response to how Ground Zero hit you really rendered me pretty speechless, and that's a hard thing to do. <laughs> and it really touched me, but it also inspired me because I thought, wow, what I had hoped for this podcast to do, I'm getting a chance to hear that it's doing it. When you go into something like this, you hope that what your intention is, is met. You know, my hope was that all of those who had the opportunity to defend Black girlhood would listen to this podcast and be inspired to do so. But you don't know until you put it out there and give people an opportunity to listen to it. One of the things that you said was you talked about how book knowledge wasn't enough for really understanding the experience of Black girls and Black women in America. Could you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think myself and a lot of people I grew up with, a lot of my friends and family were empathetic and sympathetic to the cause of and to the, the injustices that we see the, the Black community going through for centuries. And we sort of have read about these things and we've read some James Baldwin or we've read some of these accounts of kind of fictionalized or real life accounts of what people go through. And we think that we kind of get it. We can imagine putting ourselves in the shoes of those people and sort of imagining what that would be like. But we, we really don't. That's really not enough to understand what it's like to live that experience for a lifetime. Right. Uh, I think a lot of it comes from a lot of the barrier of white people not understanding is comes from the discomfort that takes place when we really put ourselves in that situation. And it's uncomfortable to think, well, am I contributing to problems? Am I contributing to the discomfort that people feel? And so I think people shy away from those uncomfortable feelings 
within us. Um, and it's easier to just read a book, post something on social media and say, I get it. I'm with the cause without really doing the work of trying to understand what is it like on a daily basis. And so I think that one of the powerful things of your podcast is that it, it kind of cuts through all that and it just grips you in a visceral way and it makes you hurt along with the stories that you're telling. I think it raises a lot of emotions in people when they listen. And I think that's powerful and that's where change begins. That is so beautiful. And I absolutely agree. One time I was on my way to do one of those diversity trainings. And to some point, even the trainings that I do, my eyes just kind of roll back in my head. Here we go again. And I really just stopped and I just prayed and I just said, God, how do I do something that's different? How do I do this work? And I think for many of us, when there's diversity trainings that we either give or receive, or we talk about equity and all of these inclusion conversations, we really are looking at it from an intellectual basis. And what I really heard in my spirit that day is that it's got to come from the heart and from the gut. Like people have to feel it. They have to involve their heart in this thing for us to move forward because we can intellectualize it. And having grown up here in Madison, you growing up in Washington, my feel from the times I've been in Seattle area is that it's very much like Madison. You have the UW, we have the UW. It's very intellectual, it's creative, it's liberal. But just like Madison, we're full of a lot of liberal bullshit of people who get off on, like you said, kind of going through the motions. I have a Black friend, having read, having studied Black history, but never have had a Black person in their home. And ever since that day, I've been really trying to go at this thing from a really heart basis and from a spiritual, that's that gut, that's where our spirit, our soul lives and and really try to hit people in that way in order to be able to move us forward as a community of people. So as we were talking last week, and one, you told me that you're a patron of my brother's podcast, Black Like Me. I told you if you become a patron of Defending Black Girlhood, I give one better than a shout out. And so now I have you on my show. I think that's better than a shout out, right? Absolutely. <laughs> but as we continued our conversation last week, you shared with me that you're a physician. And then I'm thinking, oh, my God, now we're getting deeper in this. And in sharing that, you shared a story with me about a patient that you serve. Could you talk about that here? Absolutely. And, you know, really quick, just what you were saying, it, it really kind of reminded me, I just listened to episode six of your podcast from season one, and you were talking a little bit about how the flip side of kind of modern race relations is that you mentioned that a lot of times you think white people are sort of afraid of offending or afraid of pissing off black people. And I think that kind of got to the this idea that we, we sort of intellectualize racism and how it affects people's lives. But there's this sort of superficial politeness between people where white people, we don't want to shake things up. We don't want to be accused of being that racist white person. We don't want to be a Karen or a, one of these people who ends up on YouTube. So I think that is a barrier a lot of times and sort of being authentic. I think it's a barrier to authenticity. I really agree because I think white people are more afraid of being called racist than they are of being one. Yeah. And so it keeps us stuck because it's just kind of like being afraid of going to the doctor because you think something may be wrong. But unless you go 
you're never going to get better if something is wrong. Or you can just get the belief that it's okay. But if I never go in, then it's not like the medical problem disappears because I don't address it. It actually gets worse. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, the story that I sort of mentioned to you was, it was about three weeks ago now. I work in the hospital and I was called down to the emergency room to see a patient who needed to be admitted for an acute medical problem. And I read through the patient's chart. I got a little bit of their medical background. So I'm sort of thinking about the diseases, the conditions that they have. And when I walk into the room, there's this elderly black woman in front of me. And instantly I have this internal monologue, I guess, going on where whenever I interact with people, it's impossible not to draw upon experiences from other people. And we automatically put people in categories. It's part of human nature. If you're talking to an older person or a young person or a man or a woman. And I think after listening to your podcast and thinking about these issues more over the last few months, I was very acutely aware of the fact that I could count on one hand the number of Black people that I've had true, deep relationships with in my life. And I realized that because of that, I didn't know this person's background or I didn't know their culture, their lived experience as much as I would have if this were a white woman. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm talking to this woman, she was scared. She wasn't feeling well. She was overwhelmed by what was happening around her and to her. And your words were sort of playing in the back of my mind of the trauma from generations of abuse and neglect and violence that... um, the Black women have sort of absorbed over the years and how that's passed down culturally. But also there's science that tells us that our very genetics are actually affected by the trauma, by the the stress of living uh, an entire life under racism. I wanted to be there in the moment with this person and demonstrate to my patient that I was going to be there to explain things to her, to listen to her concerns and try and not just treat the body in front of me because it's very easy, you know, when you're busy, You see a body that's sick and you need to treat the disease and move on to the next patient. But I really wanted to make this person feel like I was treating them as a whole person and not just another doctor who was going to make a diagnosis, ship them off to the next doctor. And so it really humanized that person for me in a way that otherwise I may not have been able to. That is so powerful. Honestly, I'm sitting here fighting back tears because I've been that patient. And been in situations and scenarios with doctors that after my interaction caused me just to weep because I felt so unseen and so uncared for. And I felt like I was just a body that was there. And it was like 15 minutes on to the next patient. And, you know, when we're talking about the generational trauma, we don't have to go back hundreds of years to know the trauma that Black women have experienced in the medical field in the last 50 years. Yeah. To know that we have a lot of mistrust. We've had a lot of experiences that are questionable, even just as early as the 60s. Black women were getting these forced hysterectomies. Yeah. And that has hit my family as well. We go in with a lot of distrust. And by the time we are sitting in front of you as a physician, we've gone through a lot of self-talk. We've gone through anxiety. We've gone through fear in order to get there. And usually whatever we're there for, it's been going on for a while. Like we don't get that first pain and we show up. We learn to suck it up because when we go in, we are not only sometimes misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed, we are questioned. So last year I was in an accident 
and I suffered a concussion, which the result thereof has been chronic migraines. And when I went into the doctor to recheck my medicine and saying I was still having migraines and needed something for the chronic pain I was still having in my neck and back, there was some questioning about whether I was appropriately using the medication and some questioning about whether or not I was forthcoming in my characterization of the pain that I was in. And even most recently, I went in because I had a chronic cough that had started last year. It wasn't getting better. So I called, this is in April, May. And I just said, hey, I've been having this cough since October. These are my other symptoms. About three times on the phone, I was told, we're probably going to give you the COVID test. We're probably going to give you the COVID test. So I was trying to emotionally make myself ready for that. And and here again, I'm telling you, I had had this cough since October. Mm. Now it's April, May, and I'm just going in for it. So I get there and they examine me and I go through all these protocols and then I'm screened through a verbal test and saying, you know, I'm going to ask you some weird questions. Have you lost your sense of smell? Yes. Have you lost your sense of taste? Yes. And every kind of checklist. But at the end, she says, well, you don't have a fever, so we're not going to give you the COVID test. Mm -hmm. And I thought... Here we go again. Yeah. Here we go again. I knew enough about the impact of COVID that they did take an x-ray of my chest and I didn't show any signs of pneumonia. So I felt, again, really, I could have diagnosed myself then, couldn't I? I could have just stayed at home that, okay, because I'm seeing that my lungs are not showing a buildup of fluid, I know I'm not nearing pneumonia, but I left there yet again, just feeling underserved and underdiagnosed. Yeah, that's a frustrating story to hear you tell because I think the way that you're able to sort of very kind of clearly and describe what you went through, I think a lot of people probably aren't able to have the platform that you have to share that experience. And, you know, I I think unfortunately that experience probably extends beyond just what you experience within medicine. I talked with a lot of my white friends about, do you think there's something different about this moment in time where people seem to be listening up to what people of color are saying and finally taking them serious and believing them. And I think unfortunately for too long, white America has felt very comfortable denying the lived experience of black America and just sort of coming up with rationalizations, excuses, saying, well, it's probably not as bad as they say. This is a one-off experience. I'm sure that nurse may have just been having a bad day. Whatever it is, I think we're very good at making excuses for these sort of, I don't know if you want to call it microaggressions or just racial abuse, as some people would call it, these sort of just ways of not taking your experiences seriously. And I think that that happens on so many levels. Yeah, and I think that's a great conversation to have amongst white people to really kind of dig at. You know, I think, and I don't know who came up with the terminology of microaggressions. I think I'd like to hear more of just aggression. You know what I mean? This or even macroaggression, because after a while, it's not that little small thing. You know, when they talk about microfacial expressions. Mm -hmm. It's those nanosecond moments in time where your face grimaces or smiles. If you're not paying attention or if you don't slow it down by a camera, you won't even know that it's happened. 
So I think even to call them microaggressions, and we know that this is something that is well used amongst professionals, amongst just folks just talking about it, to call it a microaggression really diminishes the impact and maybe even sometimes the intent of what's happening because it's not a nanosecond when we're having these microaggressions It's a doctor visit. It's me going into Sephora at the mall and being followed around by the plainclothes security guard because he thinks I'm about to steal something. When statistics going to say it's probably going to be an 18-year-old white girl that's in Sephora shoplifting. Like, what would I look like at this station in my life to be in Sephora shoplifting? But, you know, so it's these aggressions, really, that hit us. And Dr. Mopan, I'm actually asking that question, too. On one hand, you're kind of glad as a Black person that some of these movements are happening right now. On the other hand, uh, in some ways, I'm just calling bullshit. It's like, so now we're looking at Uncle Ben being on the box of rice. Now we're looking at Aunt Jemima. Throughout the years, they took the rag off her head and tied it around her neck, but they still had the rag, right? And it's still this Black woman. So now we're talking about things like that. Now we're talking about the SAT scores and all these things. I'm thinking like, what the hell? Like, what did it take to get here? And wasn't Aunt Jemima on that box? Uh, my whole life, Aunt Jemima has been on a box of pancakes. Yeah. She just changed how she looked. So part of me is a little suspicious, but at the same time, I'm thinking, well, I'm glad, but what is, is this a window? Is this a change? Is this a shift? Or is this just a moment in time until people forget George Floyd's name or Breonna Taylor's name? What is this? Are we going to have to sacrifice another Black person to get to the next level of rights that we deserve as Black people, you know, in this country? You're making me mad. Not you, but these <laughs> this topic is making me mad. No, I was already mad. So I'll ask you, and it's really a broad question that I don't expect you to answer fully, but like, how do you, as a white person, as you're talking to your white friends, I think one, you're talking about, you're asking them these questions, which I think that's a fantastic conversation for white people to have with white people. But the second part of it is I'll ask you is how do you keep it going? Because I don't know how to keep it going as a black person because we've protested We've died. We've been sacrificed. We've done all of these things in order to gain equality as Black people in America. So as these new things are coming down, how do you as white people keep it going? Yeah, thanks, Lolita. You know, in the past few months, you know, I'll say starting in late March, like with that captured video of George Floyd, I feel like that was for me and for our country, that was sort of a gut punch where I think it sort of forced people to face reality a little bit and say, okay, you know what? We've been making excuses for so long. We've been telling ourselves we're not contributing to the problem. What can I really do anyways? But when I think when so many of us saw that video and then we started just listening to what people were saying and realizing this is not a new problem. This has been going on for decades and for centuries. It really shouldn't take something like horrible like that happening to wake us up. But honestly, I think a lot of us are kind of realizing that when Dr. King said that the the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice, that's great, but it's not like it's just going to happen on its own. We don't have the luxury 
of time to just wait for justice to come. And I think there's enough people shouting loudly enough that the time was yesterday, the time was last year to start making these changes. And there's no excuse anymore. If another George Floyd or another Tamir Rice happens, like it's too late already. Right. Once I started pulling on that string a little bit and realizing, oh my God, there's injustice around us every day in 2020. And then you, then you start pulling that string, you go a little deeper and you, you realize, we didn't just end up here. This, our society didn't just accidentally happen with this inequalities in wealth and income. And there's a history behind us. And I think that people are realizing that white supremacy has been ingrained in the fabric of our country since the beginning. And it, it hasn't just magically gone away. We came up through history and our past is still with us and, and we are products of that past. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of just like I was having a conversation with someone about kind of the insidiousness of racism. And what I said was like, take for instance, the fact that at some point somebody made a decision to add fluoride to our water. Mm -hmm. And it's in all our water now. And whether or not I signed up for fluoride, whether or not I agree if fluoride should be there, it's in my system because it's in my water. And so that's kind of like racism in America and throughout the Americas is that it's in the system. You don't have to have signed up for it. You don't have to even have agreed to it to be impacted by it. And I think when we start understanding, it's almost just like air. And that if you are not intentional, because I can intentionally get bottled water and brush my teeth with bottled water, but still I'm probably going to get some fluoride even through my shower, through my skin. So the intentionality must be in place. It's not good enough to say, well, I've never done a racist thing or I'm not racist. I didn't own slaves. My family didn't own slaves. We came over here in the 40s. But even when you dig down with that, you realize that a lot of the European immigrants who came over in the early 19th century, it was because of the result of the production of what slaves were doing. We had a bustling system with the copper or with the cotton and with the molasses that rum was being made from that created all kinds of jobs that incentivized Europeans to come over to America. And they may have been working up north, but it was still a result of slave labor. Yeah. I asked you, and you kindly did it, I asked you if you would make a response to a review to the podcast. And you said some really, really great and powerful things. It just was so powerful. You know, you being a physician is powerful, but also you're a powerful writer. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoy the way you write, the way you express, the way you kind of process things. But one of the things that you said was you put a call out to white people. You said, listen up, white people. We have a burden of responsibility to hear these words and help create change. Why do you think it's important for you as a white person to make a call of action to other white people? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, I think there is still a level of resistance among many of the white people I know where if, you know, unfortunately, there is this stereotype people still hold on to where if they hear a black person talking about something with anger, that I think, unfortunately, it turns a lot of white people off. Mm-hmm. The way the Reverend Alex G talks about justified anger, I, there is justification in being angry. 
And there is justification in having mistrust in the medical community because of our history. And I think if it takes a white person who somebody considers safe, somebody thinks, oh, you know, I'll listen to what this guy says because he's not angry. He's just speaking up. If I can compel that person to snap out of it and listen, then I consider that a positive as long as it's a start. They need to pick it up from there and start to do the work themselves. But if I can push other people to sort of start being open-minded and listening, and then, you know, as soon as they hear what you're saying, I think they'll be enraptured just the same way I was. But I think there's that barrier where people are, they're hesitant to put themselves in that uncomfortable space of, here's somebody who's angry, are they going to be angry at me? And it's easier to just not engage. And I personally don't feel responsible for the racist actions of our history. I wasn't personally involved in those crimes against humanity, but I am a direct offspring of that system. And the easy thing to do for me is just to go about, live my life, be comfortable. And there's a very good chance that I will not have to talk about these issues if I don't want to. Mm -hmm. But I really feel like that does a disservice to myself to my fellow Americans. It's a way of sort of lying to myself and not being authentic with my heritage and with the future. My wife and I have a 14-month-old son, and I think about the world differently now. You know, I think about what will the world be like in 15, 20 years? Am I going to be having to explain to my son why we still live in a world with so much, you know, equality and so much that makes me angry? And Mm -hmm. and what, what did I do about it? You know, and... So I, I think the onus is on white people to start making waves and make people listen. I love that. And I think what I really encourage people to do, white people who are listening right now to do is do that personal work first and do it deep. Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes it's easy to get a little bit of information and then go run into the hills shouting. And you haven't done that internal work. You haven't done that struggle that you talked about earlier that none of us as humans like to do. We don't like to do the tough internal work. But sometimes I see the issues of America, of the world, and they're so huge. And I think, oh my God, and I feel overwhelmed. But then when I bring it back home and say, what can I do? What kind of person can I be in this world? You know, how can I make sure that I'm having the best heart and I'm challenging myself on the things in the ways that I need to grow? And then I'm challenging myself to do the good that I can do. I can't feed everybody, but can I feed somebody? I can't give a positive word to everyone, but can I give a positive word to someone somewhere? What are the things that I personally can do? And then as a parent, I felt a responsibility to raise children who had a heart of compassion for other people. So often, you know, I've been in a nonprofit educational world for over 30 years. And so often the first thing I hear from white people is, can I volunteer? I want a tutor. I want a mentor. And after having this really deep experience down South on this trip, you know, I came back with the question of why do white people keep raising children that continue the system of oppression. And so I came back with this underscore, like I don't need another white mentor. I don't need another white tutor. I need white people, white parents to do the job of raising kids who are so aware and their hearts have been so broken by the oppression that they don't become complicit in carrying on the system. And so I love that you're doing your work. I love 
that you and your wife as parents are thinking about how do you do the work as parents. I love that you're thinking about how do you do this work as a physician. And so there's all levels that we as individuals can commit to that we need to do. But if you don't start with that personal work of healing and getting it right and purging of racism and the fluoride in your system, quote unquote, then people really become dangerous because they have just a little bit of knowledge and they think they got it all. Still don't have a black friend. Still ain't never had nobody black in their house. Never have eaten chitlins. You know what I'm saying? And they're going off and it's more harm than good because what ends up happening is you think you got it. You think you're woke. You think you're being an ally. And that's dangerous. I think that's more dangerous in some ways. Yeah, I totally appreciate what you're saying. I think it's becoming more mainstream and more socially acceptable for white people to call out racism when they see it externally. But I think the most important work is to call it out when you see it in yourself. Amen to that. Because it's part of being anti-racist is calling out racism wherever it is. And like you said earlier, we breathe in this air of our society and it's unavoidable that we have internal biases. It's just a fact of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm really, really grateful for this conversation. I'm really grateful for having had the wonderful opportunity to meet you. And I'm hoping that this won't be our last time talking. Yeah. And that you keep listening and that you keep sharing this podcast because I'm so inspired and so encouraged by how it's impacted you personally, how it's impacted you professionally, how it's impacted you as a parent. Those were three Ps, personally, professionally, and as a parent, that I feel encouraged to keep doing what I'm doing and to keep pushing the envelope and to keep being as black woman as I can possibly be talking about these issues about defending black girlhood. And even as we grow into black women, that little girl that's still inside that sometimes will show up and sit across the desk from you and will need the compassion that you are digging deep inside to give and the understanding that you're digging deep inside to give. And though I may never cross paths with that older Black woman who came into your office, I'm so glad that the intersection that you and I have made impacted her. Mm. Thank you for that. And thank you for just sharing with me today. I agree. I I hope these conversations continue. And I hope this is just the beginning of, of more work and that we don't become comfortable and and just kind of slide back into our routines again, because I think if everybody listening just kind of looks around and looks at the reality of the world today, just ask yourself, with every instance you see where something's difficult, am I okay with that? Am I okay with the fact that I don't know many people of color? Am I okay with the fact that the, the wealth gap is so enormous and that just ask yourself, do you accept the reality or can you do something about it? And the answer is we can all do something about it on a personal, professional, or parental level, so. Absolutely. I have one last question to ask you about. I know you said you started listening into season one, and we're talking about the story of Erica Hill, a 15-year-old girl who was killed in our community. And one of the things that really struck me about that story, and you're probably not at the point where I'm going to talk about this yet, but There was a point in 2004 prior to her disappearance that she went into 
a doctor's office because there was a severe injury to, I think, her finger, her hand in some kind of way. And when she was asked to disrobe so that she could be examined, her mother took off with her. And it just makes me think about the opportunity that doctor's office, that nurse had to intervene. And just thinking about, at that point, social services was called, so something seemed suspicious about it. But I guess the question is, like, how can we help physicians, white or otherwise, when they see Black girls that are showing some signs of abuse follow it through? Yeah. So how can physicians sort of be both encouraged to intervene and also held accountable when they do see something? Yes. That's a good question. And, you know, I think a recurring theme in the story of Erica Hill, when you're exploring, you know, I've heard you interview teachers and social workers who knew her, was they felt like they were doing enough. They felt like they were doing what was required of them as a mandated reporter in their position, where in retrospect, they realized they should have done more. But it's sort of hard to know how do you respect the boundaries of, you know, you don't want to call out a parent and falsely accuse them of something, but the child is really who needs to stay at the center and you need to advocate for that child. And in the medical setting, that person is the patient. And we talk about patient-centered medicine, which is kind of a buzzword these days. And part of what that means, I think, is always acting in the best interest of the patient, not acting in what's most efficient for your schedule, what's going to save the most money for the clinic. It's what's going to be best for the patient. And as a profession, we need to bend over backwards to change if we're not keeping the patient at the center. I think as a physician, if I'm ever in a situation where I have some concerns, I always try and get the patient separated from a family member, whether it's their spouse, a husband that's bringing them in, if it's a parent, and try and create an atmosphere where I want the person to know that we have confidentiality, we have trust, that whatever they say is not going to be used against them. But to try and create this atmosphere of trust, and I think it all comes down to that personal relationship that it takes time to build. And so sometimes as a physician, if you see something suspicious, the most important thing might be keeping that person's trust so you can get them back in your clinic the next time. Mm -hmm. And and maybe they'll feel more comfortable opening up with you and sharing more, telling you what they really need from you. But if, if you push too hard that first time, they may never come back. They may feel intimidated. In Erica's case, her mom sounds like got wind of somebody who was suspicious of her and was going to start probing a little deeper. I think as physicians, if people kind of remind us to try and focus building that trust, building that respect between the provider and the patient, I think that's got to come first. But it's hard. Yeah, it is. And I think that's where that fear of racism comes into. And that kind of came out in some of the conversations I was having with school people, like with the teacher. She's like, I didn't want to be that white woman turned in a black woman. And at that point, the default went to, like you said, the mom instead of a child in need of protection and services. And I think the fear of looking like the racist by turning in a black mother, I don't want to be that one even when things are glaring and just kind of going forth. And one of the things I'll share too is I went to your hospital again, connected with my accident and I was in triage and a very sage nurse. She had been around your hospital for some time. She was doing what I can only imagine must be some mandated screening where she was asking me, are you homeless? When have you eaten? 
Are you afraid of anyone at home? Are you being abused? All these kind of questions, which on one hand, when we're thinking about advocacy for people, because we know pain is hidden, we know that abuse is hidden and that releasing of those secrets is almost sometimes like giving up your breath. So on one hand, it's like, wow, this is great. We have these mandated questions that the nurses will ask in triage. But at the same time, she never even looked at me when she was asking me some of the most deep and intimate and invasive questions. She never even looked at me. She's just typing on a computer. So have you ever, have you been abused? Are you homeless? Have you eaten? And so in that moment, I am having excruciating symptoms, pains from my concussion. And in that moment, I couldn't even just be a patient. I couldn't just be a black patient. I couldn't just be a black woman patient. I had to advocate for others who I knew were going to come behind me. And as gently as I could say in that situation, I share with her that this is my field of work and that it would be important when she's asking these very deep intimate, intrusive questions that she would make eye contact so that the people she's asking actually felt like she gave a damn about what she was asking them. And what was I met with? Hmm. Well, I've been doing this for 20 years. I guess everybody can learn something new, huh? Even though I've been at this for a while. Mm, Sarcasm. Sarcasm. Yeah. Sarcasm. When I should have just been a patient, I should have had the freedom to have just been a patient, I knew that there's going to be another Black woman after me. I knew there's going to be another woman who really was abused, who really was hungry, who really was afraid that came after me. And I didn't even have the luxury just to be concerned about my own medical condition. And even when I did, it was met with that sarcasm. And it just threw me. It really just threw me so that it's not enough even just to go through what you are mandated to ask. And even as you were talking about some of the professionals I've talked to regarding Erica Hill's story, it's not just enough to check off the list. It's not just enough to say I've done policies because what I try to remind white people is that the policies that you have were written by you. Yeah. They weren't written with me in mind. They weren't written with Erica in mind. They weren't written with that 70-year-old Black woman in mind so that they may be insufficient and really getting at what we need when we show up on the scene. Absolutely. And obviously I I wasn't there, but I can just imagine if this nurse just walks in and kind of is business-like throughout the entire interaction, I feel like she is obligated to, as a nurse, as a healthcare professional, to turn away from the screen and look at the patient and at least have, if if she can have just 30 seconds, 60 seconds to say, okay, I'm going to ask you some questions. Some of these are going to be tough, but I really want you to know that these questions are so that I can advocate for you and we can do what's in your best interest. These questions aren't being turned over to the police, the social workers, the immigration services. I don't care if you're undocumented. We're just trying to figure out how we can help you. And then maybe that's all it would have taken. And then she could be busy. But yeah, I mean, that's heartbreaking to hear that because, you know, she's been doing this so long that she's got her routine down and damn, she's going to change because she's good at her job. But so now that my head doesn't feel like it's splitting open, I am going to revisit that because I know that her name is in my chart. 
And I am going to revisit that because as a, a Black woman, but also as an advocate for those who are being abused, you know, sexually, physically, it means something to me that these questions are being asked because it is a great opportunity to catch folks. But it also means something to me that they're being asked in a way that you will never get the real answer. Yeah. Well, thank you once again, Dr. Mopan. I really appreciate you. I appreciate having this conversation. And let's just keep talking and keep digging in at this thing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for reaching out to me. And I was touched when you took such an interest in my story. You could have easily just said, okay, yeah, thanks, you know, whatever. But the fact that we made this connection is very powerful. And I thank you. All right. Well, you enjoy the rest of your week and have a great weekend. Take care. Thank you, Leda. I look forward to doing more of your show. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. That was a good conversation. And look, we mean this thing. We are not playing. We are committed to defending black girls. And look, we want you to get involved. Please visit Laleda.org to explore the work that we are doing to defend black girls to be saved wherever they are. And look, while you're there, please sign up for our mailing list so that you will not miss one single fearless conversation. <laughs>